0: So the question this morning, the question this morning and and really the question for the next few weeks as we start this series through James, the question that we need to be asking ourselves is who do I serve? Who, Who do you serve? The title for this morning is, Do You Belong to the Christ? The the world is constantly calling out for our affections, and the world is constantly calling for our servanthood and our obedience to what they claim is true, what they claim is is honorable and and pure. And I hope if, if you got anything out of that psalm this morning that we sang, it's that the words of the Lord are pure... The world is full of vanities, the world is full of deception and and, and lies, but yet those deception and lies are what is calling out for our affections, it's calling out for our slavery, for our servanthood. And so, this morning my charge is to kind of give you an introduction of James that will hopefully open up the, the rest of the book for us as we go through, and I realize I didn't get my... Click, click out. We're going to start, um, I have it up here, it's Romans, I'll read it for you, but Romans six fifteen through 23, Paul says, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I am using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations, just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I want to look at, particularly, verse 17 in that passage, um, he says, but thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. There's a pattern to this verse here. At first, you were slaves to sin. That's who you obeyed. That's who you belonged to. But as a Christ follower, when you are born again, that's no more, right? You, you, you no longer obey your old master of, of slavery and uh, to sin. Now you have a new master, a righteous master. You are a new creation. And he says, you have come to obey from your heart. Right? So it's not just behavior modification. It's not just simply that you are able to white-knuckle yourself out of some sinful situations. You've come to obey from your heart. There's a faithfulness to the Lord that comes from genuine belief. And we'll talk about that um, and its, its implications for the rest of uh, the book of James in just a moment here. Well, what did you come to obey from your heart? He says, you've come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching which he already indicated was righteousness not lawlessness right you've come to obey a pattern of teaching that is righteousness holiness not sinfulness anymore and then it says this pattern of teaching which has claimed your allegiance this is a Greek word It's all Greek, but this word in particular is a passive verb. The idea here is that you have been committed. Your allegiance, you didn't just switch. Your allegiance was changed for you by the Lord, if you are truly His. Your allegiance now belongs to Him, not to your old master, which is sin. And so, you have been committed by God to Christ. That is the life of a Christian. You have been committed by God. Your allegiance has shifted. He's pulled you out of your slavery. He's freed you and brought you to a new allegiance, which is our Lord and King, Jesus Christ. If it hasn't, if righteousness, the righteousness of God, if it has not claimed your allegiance, then you are still in your sin and you have not experienced the gospel. You are a slave to whoever or whatever claims your allegiance. And it shows that the relationship, therefore, between you and God cannot be on your terms. The relationship between you and God is not on your terms. You are required and commanded, each and every one of us, commanded to serve Him and Him alone. So why is this important for our our series through James? Well, in the book of James, what we are going to come to see is that James is um, pretty similar to a New Testament book of wisdom literature. And this book, this letter from James, is meant for us to discover what has claimed our allegiance. So as we go through this book of James together, we need to be examining ourselves, we need to be examining ourselves through the text to see, where is my allegiance? Is my allegiance really to the Christ King, or is my allegiance to sin? Is my allegiance to the world? Is my allegiance to self? See, because simply believing the right doctrines is not enough for James. He has the famous passage. Oh. There's supposed to be a verse in between there, but I'll, oh, maybe I didn't even put it on there. I'm sorry. (laughs) James 2.9, the famous passage, you believe that God is one? Good. So do the demons. And they shudder. Now, James is referencing Deuteronomy 6 here, which is called the Shema, a very famous prayer for any um, Jewish boy, which would have been, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give to you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. There's implications behind that, but not for today. When you lie down, when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. But then James says, okay, you believe that. Well, Good, you need to, but so do the demons. So clearly just paying mental assent to the fact and saying that, hey, our God is one is not enough for James. James is looking for allegiance. You can't just simply tie the words around your arm and put the uh, Shema on your doorpost, which is what they do. It's just a little Hebrew character that they put to remind them of the Shema. That's not enough. You must do the deeds of belief as well. And that's why he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. You can't just say it. You have to do it. You have to actually believe it and do the deeds of that belief. But then also, doing good things is not enough either. Because James says in one twenty seven that religion that God our Father accepts as pure and undefiled is this. Look after orphans and widows in their affliction or their distress, right? But keep yourself from being polluted, or some of your translations say unstained. Keep yourself from being polluted by the world. So you can't just simply pay mental assent without the deeds of faith, and you also can't just simply do good deeds Without being unstained from the world, and think that's enough. If, if you're if you're doing good deeds like the world is doing good deeds, and and you're just with the same mentality as the world, then James says that's false religion. That's defiled religion. That's not pure before God. Israel wanted to worship God and love the world. They did not have pure religion. Jeremiah seven one through eleven tell that God says you keep saying this is the temple, this is the temple, and yet you love the world, and you love the things of the world, and you think I'm going to accept that worship. I will not. And then Psalm 135 tells us that if you try to live according to the world, you will become like the world you worship. Listen to this. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, Made by human hands, they have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, nor is there breath in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. You will become like what you worship. So if you worship the world if you worship false idols if you worship things you will become dead like those things and your character will resemble the world instead of Christ so James's concern is that you must determine whether or not you truly belong to the Christ that's our setup Now I'm going to pray. That was all an introduction, but the rest of it's shorter, so it's fine. It was just a long introduction. Let me pray, and then I'm going to give us some background on the book of James that will be important for us to understand this question and this examination. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning and thank you, Lord, that we can come together and and worship you, Lord. I'm so encouraged by the people here. It's so encouraging to see So many brothers and sisters in Christ coming together to worship you. Lord, we know that there is fear out in the world. And while we don't want to be uh, callous toward the world, callous towards those who are in fear, we also want to obey you, Lord, when you call us to come together and worship you. Lord, I pray that as we go through uh, the book of James that, our allegiance would be shown, whether it's to You or to the world or to sin, Lord, and that if our allegiance is to the world, Lord, that You would commit us to You. Bring us out of the world, Lord. Call our hearts out of allegiance to the world and and bring it into a loving and saving relationship with You, Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, for the rest of the sermon that it would be clear, that it would... Um, speak to the hearts, Lord, not because of my words, but because of your words shining forth. Use me as an instrument, Lord Jesus. In your name I pray. Amen. So, some background for the book of James here. Um, the first thing we, I want to show is that the author is James, but really his name is Jacob. Okay, maybe you've never heard that before, but in Hebrew and in Greek, it's, it's Jacob. It's very clearly it's Jacob, but it's been anglicized to James, and that's how we recognize it today. But I think Jacob is actually a pretty important element, as we'll see, because he's writing to the twelve tribes in dispersion. But this James is the half-brother of Jesus. In the Gospel of John, we are shown that he was um, unbelieving. He... He wasn't too proud of his brother. Um, but Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15.7 that when Christ appeared, he appeared first to James and then the apostles. And it's probably there that uh, James was converted, that he had his, his come to Jesus moment when he saw his brother risen from the dead and true to all that he had said and claimed. So Christ appeared to him, and then he was with the apostles in, at the beginning of Acts praying. Um, so it was very quickly that he uh, w- had come to this saving relationship with Jesus Christ. He had been, become part of the church, um, and then he was a leader of the early church. Now, some people, they claim rightfully that he was a leader of the Jerusalem church, but actually, if you look at Scripture in the way that Peter and Paul and the book of Acts speaks about James. He actually had authority that went beyond just Jerusalem. It was probably uh, more of revered as a leader of the church in general. And the reason why uh, we can make this kind of claim is uh, in Acts 12, 15, and 16.4, uh, Peter and Paul submit to the authority of James. And it is James at the Jerusalem council in Acts 15 who makes the final judgment call. And he says, I have decided... So there's authority that's, that James has. And that's, the reason why that's important to bring up is because this is, as we'll see in a second, I don't want to give too much away real quick, but this is the earliest New Testament book. And so it makes sense that it would be the leader of the church writing the first book of the New Testament and that it would be immensely practical for a people, a new body, a new church that is going through severe persecution. So James speaks with authority to the early church. The recipients that James is writing to, if I need to click here, okay, keep that there. So the recipients that James is writing to, he calls the twelve tribes in the diaspora or in the dispersion they're exiled they're they're fleeing from Jerusalem because of the persecution that had just taken place this happened this dispersion happened because of what happened to Stephen who was the first martyr so this happens all the, this begins to happen i should say all the way back in acts uh, chapter 8 on that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria And then the main passage that a lot of scholars and commentators use to kind of identify the timing of this is Acts chapter 11, 19 through 21, where he says, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as uh, Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. But some of them however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them and a great number of Gentiles believed and turned to the Lord. So James, right, as Jacob, writes to the early church that he calls the twelve tribes in dispersion. So James as a leader writes as kind of like a patriarchal figure writing these wisdom this wisdom to the church And listen to this he tells them as he calls them uh, the 12 tribes this is the continuation of the true Israel True Israel is Israel that believes in the Christ the Messiah So listen, James says, stay fast, stay steadfast under trials, which the original 12 tribes did not do. Carry out the mission of God, which the original 12 tribes did not do. Be faithful to the Christ, which the original 12 tribes did not do. So the date of this book is, uh, like I said, it's it's the earliest New Testament book, 46 to 48 A.D., And it's a unique style of writing that resembles Jewish wisdom literature. I have up there just some of the ways that James and the book of Proverbs, Jewish wisdom literature, actually line up. James 1, 5, Proverbs 2. Seeking wisdom from God, slow to speak, controlling anger, dangers of the tongue, confession and prayer, and the prayer of uh, the righteous man, steadfastness in trials. Um, which actually lines up with an apocryphal book, but is still, the way it's written is wisdom literature nonetheless, to show that. Um, It is the quickest and bluntest book of the New Testament. It has the most use of the imperative verb, which means it's the most use of telling us to do something, or to be something, or to believe something, of any other book in the New Testament. And it echoes the sayings and teachings of Jesus during his earthly ministry as well. James lines up clearly with the teachings of his half-brother, Jesus. Joy in trials, asking you will receive, doers of the word, the tongue defiling. And even more closely, it lines up with uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, so that's our background information, which is meant to help us to better understand um, why this book would have been written, why James would be using these sort of imperatives, why James would be so focused on this is what you need to believe, this is what true faithfulness is, and I can imagine that from James' perspective, there's an element of I've, we've seen it happen with our fathers over and over and over again that we are told... This is what true faithfulness is, and then we fall away. Right? When Israel is put under trials in the Old Testament, they don't do too well. And so now Israel, true Israel, right, believing Israel, is under persecution again after the martyrdom of Stephen. And they've scattered. And so James writes to them, In your dispersion, in your exile, in your scattering, this is what true faithfulness looks like. And so that finally takes us to, oh, sorry, I had an outline too. This is our tentative outline for, our, for when we go through James, All right? So we're going to be examining whether or not we have true saving faith saving faith in trials and temptations, right? But this is our passage for this morning. It's very long. (laughs) So if we could stand together for the reading of the Word. Although... (laughs) James 1, 1. James, a servant slave of God, and Lord Jesus the Christ to the twelve tribes dispersed. Greetings. Amen. There's a lot here. I could go on for a lot longer with just this verse, but I won't do that to you. What does it mean? What does it mean to be a servant slave? Of Jesus the Christ. When I was reading this verse, the first passage that came to mind was Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. See, people think they need to know Jesus, but the reality is, is Jesus needs to know you. We, the reason we think this way generally is because we are in our sin we are fundamentally narcissistic. Life is about us. And this has only been heightened with the influence of modernity. This, this post-enlightenment thinking where uh, man's ability to reason and come to uh, grips with reality is... is um, it's really, it's, it's the, the pinnacle of man. This is the, the highest form of evidence is man's ability to, to reason. And if I can't reason my faith, then it must not be true. And this has impacted the way that we view saving faith in the modern world. Why? Because saving faith or belief, these definitions have fallen under more modern meanings. It's become something closer to mental assent or recognition, which is actually closer, by the way, to Gnostic belief, which was a heresy, which is still a heresy now, but it was definitely a prominent heresy in the early church, where you have gained some sort of secret knowledge. And so you can have, because of this, a culture that says they believe in Jesus, but their lives neglect any real submission to him as the Christ. And so what does this look like in today's world? Well, in a number of ways. The first is it looks like nominal Christianity. People who claim to be Christians because they walked an aisle or they had a come-to-Jesus moment, but that's pretty much it. And so they proclaim the name of Jesus, I'm a Christian, But it's just based on an experience that they have. It's it's just by name. There's no real surrender. There's no real brokenness, as we're going to see in James. There's also antinomianism, which is just a fancy way of saying lawless Christianity. People who claim to be Christians without law, without morality, and it becomes a christianity that looks more like the book of judges where every christian just does what is right in their own eyes and how dare you say otherwise to me i'm free in christ they look like the world they think like the world then we have a historical christianity Christians who have no regard for church history or historical context or tradition and are all about making Christianity culturally relevant. Usually butchering the word of God and the gospel in order to tickle people's ears because filling up churches is a good way to make money. And then you have Gnostic Christians These are Christians that are more focused on a religious experience and they emphasize their me and Jesus individual relationship without regard for others, without regard for authority, without regard even in a lot of ways for a correct understanding of the Word of God. So their, their Christianity becomes individualistic. They're not teachable. They're not good at listening to church authority. They're usually lone ranger Christians, and if they do come to church, it's inconsistent. Why? Because the relationship is all about me and Jesus. It's me and Jesus. That's Gnostic Christianity. All of these foreign to truly understood biblical Church and faith throughout history. There's always been, obviously, streams of these. But the problem is, these are people who are on the wide road. It's a way that seems right to them. And they think they know Jesus so well, but the problem is that Jesus probably doesn't know them. And that's what matters. There's a lot of people who claim, I know Jesus. And that's the wrong thing, because the question is, does Jesus know you? One of these things they all have in common is that their idea of saving faith becomes unqualifiable on their own terms. You can't qualify it. You can't confront it. You can't measure it. It becomes too, um, i want to use the word, esoteric. It's too hard to understand. It's too hard to to qualify. Is this real or is it not? And I think that's why we have a lot of Christians that say, I don't know if I'm saved. I wrestle with whether or not I'm actually saved. If Jesus, if I'm really united to Christ, is Jesus really in my heart? Well, it probably comes back to you don't have a really good definition of faith or belief to begin with. Faith Pistis, the Greek word as it is biblically understood, is closer to this idea of fidelity, faithfulness. It's a faith, it's a belief, but it's a belief that is shown by its faithfulness to the word of God and our faithfulness to Christ. So one thing we have to recognize is that Jesus is Lord whether or not we say so. He is king whether or not. We recognize it. Whether or not we want to admit it. And this is why men like James in our letter and Paul consistently called themselves servant slaves or slaves or servants, depending on your Bible translation, of the Christ, of God. Why? Because their idea of faith wasn't just, I'm a believer in God. Their idea of faith was, I'm a servant of the Lord. I am belonging to Him now. My allegiance is to Christ and God alone. They focused on something that revealed their true faithfulness to Christ. I am a servant of the Lord. And then we have a servant. James is a servant of the Lord Jesus the Christ. Christ is not a last name, by the way. I don't know if any of you knew that, but Christ is not Jesus's last name. It's not where he's from. Christ is a title. It is a kingly title. He is the Messiah. Christ is the way of saying he is the Anointed One. It's a kingly title. It's got political tones to it, in the sense that not that we put our faith in politics or that Jesus is going to come back and is you know the question is he going to be a Democrat or is he going to be a Republican. He's he's king. All will bow to him. He is the Christ. And one thing that we have to recognize is that because he is the king, we serve him. This is why through the Gospels we hear Jesus announce the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. It's kingdom in nature. That's what he's focused on. Why? Because he's the king. You want to get into his kingdom. That's the eternal kingdom. The kingdom of this world is falling away. The kingdom of this world rejects God. The kingdom of this world will only accept you on their terms. So the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of the world are at odds with each other. And you can only have allegiance to one. This is why Paul confirms this in 2 Timothy when his emphasis is on Uh, The gospel, he says that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. That's his focus, right? He's conquered the enemies of sin and death. But then he says, and the offspring of David, which is pointing to what? His kingship. Who will judge the living and the dead. So, all this to say, this is the concern of James. James. This is the concern for us as we go through this book. Is your allegiance to the Christ? Do you talk a big game about your faith, but does your life actually show real surrender to Him? Or do you talk the talk and not walk the walk? Can you claim like the demons that you believe in Jesus, but the reality is your life shows that you pay allegiance to Satan and the world? So don't, through this series of James, this is why I want to define faith a little bit for us, because as we go through this, I don't want you asking yourself, do I believe in Jesus? A lot of people believe in Jesus. I want you to examine if your faith is the kind of faithfulness of a servant to his Lord. Does Jesus know you? Are you truly his servant? Is your life a life of faithfulness and allegiance. And let me, ask, let me just say this. Now. If not, I mean, if you're already sitting here and saying no, then today's the day. You don't need to wait till we go through the book of James to figure this out. If you already know the answer is no, stop putting it off. And maybe you haven't because, maybe, you, maybe you've put it off because you're more familiar with these modern ideas of faith that we mentioned earlier, and you're not just sure how to qualify. Do I really have faith? I mean, is this real Instead, recognize Jesus is the Christ. He is the anointed king. He rose from the dead. He conquered sin. He conquered death. And he demands, he doesn't ask, he demands that you bring yourself under his lordship and that he claim your allegiance to him. And today is the day. It's simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. I understand that Christ is king and I want to serve him. And it will be the most difficult life you could ask for but it will also be the most joy-filled life that you could ever experience. There's nothing harder than denying the old king. Denying the old self. And coming under a new allegiance. But when you recognize that that allegiance is actually freedom, and that allegiance is eternal and leads to righteousness in life, then it fills us up with joy. So I wanted to end with just a picture of true faithful allegiance. The Bible gives it to us in Hebrews 11. This is called the Hall of Faith. Now faith is the underlying substance toward which our hope is directed and the conviction of things not seen. So genuine faith, this kind of faith that James is so concerned with, is a faithfulness to God to act in this visible world because the unseen God compels us to action. So let me say that again. In other words, faithful faithfulness... True, genuine faith to the Christ is not simply mental recognition, but a compulsion from the reality of God to live as an obedient servant in this present world. So this is what true faith is. True faith is where God, who we cannot see and the calling that we cannot yet claim yet, right? the inheritance that we know is in front of us, that we hope for but we cannot see, this is what we put our hope in. And we are faithful to the calling that this God has called on us. And we live that out in the present world. And in case that was still hard to understand, the author of Hebrews understood that and therefore gave examples. Noah's faithfulness is shown by his building of the ark, the author of Hebrews says. He's responding to the command of God. He couldn't see a flood. He didn't even know what a flood was. He didn't have blueprints of a boat from an architect to work off. He had what God had provided with him, to him. And so the faithfulness from Noah is obedience to the command of God. Abraham's allegiance is shown in his following the command of God to leave his home and follow the Lord into the promised land that he could not see yet. And by this faithfulness, Abraham offered up his son Isaac on the altar. Hebrews tells us, God had commanded Abraham, Offer up your son, the son whom you love. And Abraham obeyed the command of God. And just for those of you who don't know the end of the story, the son was spared. God does not enjoy child sacrifice. But the point of the passage is to instead show us that true allegiance to God is to do whatever he commands of us. Moses' faithfulness is shown when he rejects the household of Pharaoh. And when he returned to Egypt, he obeyed the command of God to sprinkle his household with the blood of the Lamb. They couldn't see the angel of death yet. They'd never experienced anything like this. But in faithful obedience, they sprinkled the blood of the lamb on the door for the Passover. This is the kind of faith that the Bible talks about over and over again, and this is the kind of faithfulness that James is wanting us to examine. True faith. True faith is faithfulness to the commands of God. It's faithfulness to in allegiance to the one true king who is Jesus Christ. And so my prayer as we close here is that we would consider this as we continue through the book of James, that we would be examining ourselves. And if we are in the faith, then praise God for that. And the book of James can be used as the word of God and as a tool to grow us in Christ. But I will say one more time, because I know that there are some of you out there who don't know whether or not you're saved or recognize that you're not. And I'll just tell you, I hope the book of James opens your eyes to what true faith really is, what saving faith really looks like. But I also pray that you don't wait till the end of the book of James to discover that. I pray that the Lord reveals that to you now and that you would make that profession of allegiance to him as king. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning. And I do pray, God, that each and every one of us would be your servants, would be your workers, God, I pray that we as the Oasis Church would be a light that shines in the darkness because of our love for you, Lord, and our willingness to follow and obey your commands out of joy and out of love. And because of that, that we would also show a love to others as well and a love that is bold enough to share with them the truth that you are king. I pray, Lord Jesus, for each person in here, Lord, to be called by you into his kingdom. And I pray, Lord, also for each person here who is already uh, part of that, Lord, that you would grow us as we go through the book of James. Make us stronger believers. Make us look more and more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen.